Hello, I'm Mark Petruzzi, host of Selling the Cloud podcast. And I'm Ray Reich, your co-host of the show. We talk to a wide variety of cloud and SaaS industry thought leaders and revenue generation experts. Who share their unique insight into what is required to build and grow a great business in the cloud. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to the first episode, inaugural episode of Selling the Cloud podcast. And we are very, very fortunate to have on Greg Holmes, the former CRO and Chief Strategy Officer at Zoom and close friend of mine as well. Welcome, Greg. Today, we're going to cover four main areas. The first one is why did Zoom Zoom, right? With all the challenges that are out there and the competition in the space. The second, you know, something I know you really, really know well, and you've made sure you instilled in Zoom from the beginning, is how to build a purpose-driven company. Third, we'll go deep into resilience and the importance in sales leadership and sales roles. And fourth, and again, probably the most important in all this, the power of staying humble. Greg, if you can kick us off, give us a little bit of your journey to the Selling the Cloud podcast. All right. Thank you, Mark and Ray. Pleasure to be here. Really appreciate you inviting me and excited to spend a little time with you here today. So the journey to this podcast, I would say it started, you know, while I was at Zoom, head of sales at Zoom, I think it was back in 2018, I went to a golf event that Salesforce was hosting out in Half Moon Bay. And I had the pleasure of having a man named Paul Melchiori in my foursome. I know you know well, a legend in his own right. You know, we hit it off from the start and had a great time playing. We ended up getting together again and playing up in the city for another round and just stayed in touch. And when I retired last January, Paul reached out to me, introduced me to you, Mark. And I feel like we kind of made friends for life. I know you guys were working on the book, Sell in the Cloud, and asked me if I'd like to take part in one of the chapters. And you had me at hello and had a lot of fun doing that. And, you know, I think that's what's brought me here today. You know, it's a small world and glad we're connected. Yeah, me as well, Greg. So yeah, let's dive in. So even before the pandemic, Zoom was wildly successful. When a lot of your competitors just languished or a fair amount completely failed, tell us a little bit about you know how and why that went the way it did. Yeah, it's a great question because I think everyone asked that. You know, there was such a crowded space. How did it all work out? You know, I think when you're starting a new company, you're either trying to do something brand new that's perceived to be a new need in the market, or you're trying to do something that's already been done, but just better, you know, kind of the better mousetrap, if you will. So Zoom was really focused on the latter. You know, obviously there was a lot out there in the world of online meetings, video conferencing, but Eric, our CEO, while he was at Cisco, you know, he looked around and saw at Cisco that, you know, they had WebEx, they had telepresence from the Tamburg purchase, they had Jabber, and they were starting to do cloud PBX. And Eric looked around, and even at Cisco, none of these solutions talk well to each other. You know, they're challenging to use, but, you know, it was clunky to try to go between any of those to have sort of a seamless experience. So that was kind of one of his focuses right from the start was, I want to build a technology that really takes all those mediums, if you will, as far as collaboration, bring it together in a seamless solution. And the second was, you know, kind of related because of that is he noticed things like WebEx were starting to fail. You know, WebEx was architected in the late 1990s and it wasn't built for mobile 
It wasn't built for video being the forefront of the interaction. So Eric really focused on that to create a new technology that was going to be built for the new age of mobile, varying bandwidths. And by doing that, would create a product that was easy to use and the experience was seamless and it just worked and was reliable. And that was the adamant focus from the start from Eric and his engineering team and always has been since. And that's what set us apart from the competition in a huge way, that just the technology was purpose-built to really succeed in sort of this new age of collaboration. I think the second was the culture. You know, you had the technology that was delivering happiness because people were so frustrated from the old stuff they were trying to use that wasn't working. And then we built a culture around that happiness concept. You know, we were adamant daily. We sort of marched to that tune of how do we deliver happiness to our customers, not just through the technology, but through the way we interact with them? How do we deliver happiness to our own employees so they feel like they're part of something big and doing it for the right reasons? And I think those were the two main reasons we started crushing the competition. You know, there's some others. We were very price disruptive. That certainly helped us. And there were some really cool new features of Zoom that kind of caught people. But I think those first two are really the big reasons that Zoom's really had the success it has. Greg, let me double click on the product-led Firth, because you mentioned Eric was really a product visionary. He saw what Cisco wasn't doing. And as a longtime user of video communications, I was go to meeting, go to webinar, join me. I started using Zoom in 2016. I always felt, yes, it was a product-led kind of company, but I was first engaged with a sales-led customer acquisition motion. So let me ask you, when you were running sales, were you more of a product-led growth engine or a sales-led growth engine? Well, that's a good question. From my standpoint as head of sales, you're asking, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think we were more, I would say more sales. Well, actually early days, I've never had anyone ask me that question. That's a very good question. Now that you say that, I want to say sales right away. I mean, obviously that's what we were doing, but now that you mention it, I would say that first year, maybe a little more product led. And I say that because I was thinking about this morning, I was thinking about you know, the first couple of sales reps I hired that first year. And we talked daily about just open your ears, open your ears, open your eyes, listen to the customer. What is it that they're in need of? What has been missing in their experience? And let's take those things. We've got to be smart about what we take. We can't take everything, but what are the main ones that we can take back to engineering? We became the voice of the customer back to engineering from the product standpoint. And that was huge. We started helping Eric and team know, hey, get this feature done first. For example, BlueJeans was kind of the up and comer at that time, and they were doing um, aggregation of video. And that was sort of a new hot thing. And it was sort of around that whole more seamless integration of all those mediums. So we said, Eric, I think we need this first because we weren't able to compete too well with them. And they were sort of the hot ones in the market. Within six months, Eric and team delivered that capability. And so I think we were product driven that first year. And then from there, you know, we always kind of keep that listening to the customer, but we really started getting a little more sales focused, focused on the customer and really where can we win in the market the fastest. Well, I know, Mark, we're going to drive down here into some of the cultural aspects, but Greg, I just wanted to mention, I followed Blue Jeans Network very closely. And in the last six months, they sold out to Verizon for a little less than $500 million. And Zoom has this huge, you know, I don't know, is it $50, $60 billion market cap now? What, do you know what it is? I looked yesterday. I thought it was a hundred and, I want to say 100, 
115, but maybe. I'm <laughs> yeah, I think it's closer to 115 for sure. So something beyond the technology really made that difference between those two outcomes. So Mark, I'll let you kind of maybe talk a little bit more about how culture drove that difference. Yeah, well, you know, I want to hit on the point, Greg, that you mentioned about just that happiness approach. So I, you know, I get it. First year product, you got to get everything stabilized, build a great product. But I think, you know, more than even just a sales culture, that idea around a happiness culture and delivering that to your clients and frankly, your prospects and even companies that maybe, you know, didn't decide to go with you the first time, because that's a whole nother area. There were so many opportunities that, you know, you all won. But there were opportunities you lost. And then a few years later, you came back and won because you really treated your customers or prospects rather with a lot of respect. So, you know, go a little deeper into that happiness mindset and, you know, when that was kicked in gear and how it really served you and Eric by driving it. Yeah, it, it was, um, I mean, the key, I think, key to building any culture, we started it early and right away. Eric was a big fan of the book, Deliver Happiness by David Shea. And he would give that to all the new hires, everyone that got hired and really adamant that we all read it. And, you know, we started doing all hands early. I remember, you know, our all hands in the beginning were truly all hands. We would stand in a circle. You know, I was the sixth employee in Santa Clara in 2013, and I hired four salespeople that first year. So we were probably, you know, getting up towards... 10, 12 people. But, you know, I think that first year, second year, we literally were standing in the little office space we had. We kind of joined hands and we just go around the horn almost. And some of that was talk about what kind of examples of delivery happiness have you had today? And it was either, it could be internally with one of the fellow coworkers or with a customer. And we really just started making that a daily sort of practice of focused on that. And I think by doing that, then the reps, as they got on the phone, that was their mindset. It wasn't about, I got to go get a deal today. It was like, I got to go make someone happy today. And that, literally, and when I heard that first year, we had another competitor, and I don't want to talk down on competitors, but there was a competitor in the market that was pretty hot. And I remember hearing, I talked to a customer and then I heard it again, sort of that same week from a partner. And they said, listen, this other company, you know, it's not comfortable when we deal with them. It almost feels kind of used cars, forced kind of interaction. Um, they're not listening to me. But when I've dealt with your team so far, Greg, it's been comfortable. I've enjoyed it. I feel like I'm being listened to and it's a much better interaction. The light bulbs went off. I'm like, this stuff is legit. Like, obviously you want to try to deliver happiness, be kind and listen and respect. But, you know, unfortunately people don't focus on enough. And just by doing that and staying with that, and building on that and then getting that feedback and knowing that people noticed it. That became the battle cry as much as the technology itself was, like I said, delivering happiness. And we had one of the sales reps on my team that Eric made the CHO, the chief happiness officer. <laughs> Her name was Heather Swan. And she then became sort of in charge of like, you know, bringing stuff up in our all hands about delivering happiness, examples that we're doing it with our customers and prospects. But again, it was internal and external. That was the key too, because you got to embody that with everything. Can't just be to customers and then have a difference in how you're treating each other in the company. So we had a whole happiness crew. It's huge. It gained such momentum that it became really powerful for us. In, in fact, I wanted to double click on that one because you mentioned the happiness crew, because having a culture at six people, 60 people, it's a little bit easier because you're in a central office, you can have events, et cetera. But when you go to 600 and 6,000, it's more difficult. How did you do that? And was the happiness crew key to that as you started to scale across different locations? Oh, no doubt. 
Yeah, that's a great question, Ray. And I think that was the biggest piece. You know, it's one to kind of hear it because we had a lot of remote employees by that second year and kind of continued on that way. We added an office in Santa Barbara. We started an office in Denver at the end of the second year. We ended up getting an office in Kansas City. And then it expanded. Now they've got to land in all the other locations and obviously international as well. But I think the happiness crew just extended that structure you need to really keep it alive and breathing locally in each of those offices while you also do it sort of as a group collectively. And so we would nominate sort of a head of the happiness crew at each location. They would meet separately. It was almost like, I don't know if you're familiar, like Pareto principles, the vital few. It's kind of like the vital few sort of where you'd have these vital few champions and it was all around culture at each of the different locations. And even for remote folks, we would choose people that were just remote. So they were represented. And that was big. That sort of made more people carrying that torch and thinking about it every day in the people they saw and interacted with the most. And, you know, I think that really helped it spread. Yeah, I think, you know, knowing you, Greg, and knowing how authentic of a person you are, you know, the ability to hire, and we have this, I think, a whole chapter in the book about authenticity. And it is really, if you can hire the individuals that are comfortable being authentic versus, as you just described, having some competitors that maybe were training their sales team to be sales machines and go for the clothes and, you know, immediately get a budget. All of this, when you can put that authenticity into the process and focus on, you know, everyone, even employee happiness here. Not a lot of sales forces worry too much about their employees being happy and especially their sales reps being happy. I think, you know, some people can call this out as being very qualitative or being warm and fuzzy, but it works. So love to hear more, you know, around that, even just hiring for authenticity. How can you learn that in the interview process and the recruitment process? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that is the key for founders and building that right culture. That was a difference maker. Because like I said, you know, it's one thing, certainly, if you just have that maniacal approach about the customer and doing right by the customer, you know, I think that's certainly going to serve you well. But if you're not practice what you're preaching to your own employees, you sort of get like a double standard. And that's not as sustainable. I don't think you build the momentum that Zoom has built by doing it across the board. And we had on our wall, deliver happiness. And then it was to yourself, to your community, to your coworkers, to your customer. So it was very clear and new hires got that in the training. It was about how you need to think about it holistically, not just in one place. So I think that was huge. From a hiring standpoint, yeah, I've kind of said this before, at least in sales. And I know every department beyond just the core capabilities of that particular job description, at least half the interview was really focused on digging into that individual and trying to find examples of how they've delivered or if they've delivered happiness in their past. Like what was your best interaction with a customer where you really delighted them? Tell me a story about that. And obviously you could tell right away that you know, whether they did or didn't do things like that in their life. We wanted to find people that already kind of had that in their DNA and it would come alive even more at Zoom if we had this huge culture around it. I remember one time we hired a guy out in Denver. He was working at a diner that a lot of the reps used to go to, you know, go get a meal. And they came back to me and they said, this guy is amazing. The way he treats us when we come into that restaurant, it's like no other like interaction with a waiter or waitress we've ever had. He's just so in tune with us and, you know, making sure we're feeling good about the experience. 
And so we brought him in, you know, this guy had no background at all in technology or anything, but you know, he ended up starting as a BDR and the guy's still going strong. I still hear stories about him and you know, what, what an opportunity he was given, but it was because he was a happiness deliverer, if that's a thing, but yeah. <laughs> I think it's a word now, which is great. And you know what? So Greg, I'm going to switch it up a little bit for us because I want to make sure everyone knows who listens to this, you know, that you have all these qualitative abilities and building a team, but you know what? We all have to have the other side and you have been as effective and as incredible building the right processes for your sales organizations, leading through the metrics and the data. I know you do that really well as well. And then I know from the beginning, and you were in a great spot with Zoom, that you leverage sales technologies into your team very, very early. And you immediately did amazing jobs with that. And that served you well as well. So can you tell us a little more about the kind of the quantitative side now and how you've managed and how that served you for all the success you've experienced? Yeah, you know, that's just as critical. You got to tap into the right signals that are telling you're heading in the right direction. I think for me, you know, I've never been diagnosed, but I think I've got some level of ADD. So for me, trying to grab too many things and track them just was challenging for me. I mean, certainly we had like a top five key metrics or KPIs, we would call them that performance indicators that we felt gave us a good gauge of how we were doing as far as, you know, like you said, that side of the business and if we were doing the right things and right motions. I tried to square in on maybe one of those as the head of sales in my battle cry to my leaders. You know, for example, we brought in a technology called people.ai. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they, I am, yep. they sort of aggregate all your activity, your emails sent, your phone calls, meetings conducted. And for us online, how many Zoom meetings the reps had had. And I really squared into that. I started digging in and I worked with them actually sort of partnered with them on really squaring in on Zoom meetings and how many Zoom meetings should a rep on average be having and by segment, because every segment's different. And that became a huge battle cry for me the last couple of years I was there was watching, you know, like, for example, we dug into the data and found that an SMB rep, if they held at least 40 Zoom meetings a month, they were more likely to be on track to hitting or overachieving their number. It was a big indicator. So I really jumped on that. I tracked the heck out. I did contests around it, games around it, just put it up on the scoreboard. And that was helpful for me. Certainly there are other things. And I had leaders who were better at kind of maybe going for three of them and they could lead that way. We had that available, but I was more of this grab one that I know is directionally correct, that if we do this right, we're going to have a high chance of succeeding. And that worked out for me really well. So again, it's kind of depending on how your brain works, I think sometimes. And that for me was kind of going sort of a little more singular focus on a key metric was what worked for me. Greg, you mentioned something that in selling to cloud, the sales motion often is differentiated on your target audience. You sell different sales motion to the SMB versus commercial versus enterprise. Can you tell us a little bit about at Zoom, did you really start your market leadership and dominance in the SMB and go up market or did you start at enterprise and come down? And how did you manage such different sales organizations successfully simultaneously? That first year, we actually focused on education. That was kind of the hot market for us. That was really the only place we were finding any wins because you know Zoom just didn't have all the capabilities of the competition when we first came out the gates. But we had the right functionality for education, as we found. And so we just doubled down there. 
And we focused there for a while until we started grabbing a few more capabilities that would allow us to go in and compete. I think that first year, if I remember right, I split it, you know, a thousand employees and below is SMB and a thousand and one above is enterprise. So that was kind of a real simple break for that first year and how we were able to just divide territories. But after the first couple of years, it got dialed in pretty well where it was, you know, I think SMB, we did 11 to 250, 251 to 500 was commercial, 501 to 5,000 was majors. And then we had enterprise, anything above that. So it took some time to sort of segment out to that. And what was helpful early on is we brought in a consultant that one of our leaders had worked with before. We did a buyer's journey because frankly, we were, you know, like I said, we had a lot of education customers after year one. We had sprinklings of some enterprise. Oracle kind of came in early, which was awesome. We had Quicken Loans, which is a pretty good account for us. Just remembering a couple of names, but we certainly had our you know, SMB at mid-market. It was a little bit of a hodgepodge, but it was good. We had sampling from each. We did this buyer's journey and we were able to have this interview to help us interview. I think we interviewed like 50 customers from each of those buckets and kind of understood the journey that that buyer took to end up making that final decision to purchase. And then that helped us build a sales process around that segment and, you know, kind of the sales stages and what are the things you need to do in each for enterprise versus SMB versus mid-market. It was a great practice for us. You know, certainly I highly recommend it as you get enough of a sampling size of customers to do something like that, whether you do it yourself or get a little help like we did, because then it kind of helped build that sort of mapping of success based on the market that you're selling in. That's great, Greg. You know, again, we'll shift into another area now. And in selling the cloud, you ended up being our titan of resilience. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about the power of resilience for a sales career. And then, you know, I know you're very open, you know, hey, you've had some amazing successful days, many more successful days than days that have not been successful in your career, hence the amazing results, but you've had some rough days as well. And the reason you're here, you know, where you are today and with the success you have today is your ability to work through and be resilient. Tell us a little bit of your point of view on that and really how do you pull yourself up on the tough days? I think resilience is, yeah, it's something that I think does come through experience. Maybe some are born to obviously be more resilient than others, but I do think it has to sort of be refined in you through your life experiences. It was for me, as you mentioned, I think early childhood challenges and just frankly, it's hard for me to say, what was that trigger that went on my my brain to say, I'm going to be a survivor. I'm going to fight through challenges. And, you know, it clicked for me early on. I think, you know, there was one thing early on that kind of put a challenge to me, if you will. We had some counselors at school that kind of told me and my brother that we were, they kind of threw statistics around like, hey, you know, 75% of kids who have parents that are alcoholics are going to be alcoholic. And I was like, geez, (laughs) those are very good odds. But I'm like, I think, I don't know if they're trying to light a fire in me or just scare me, but they lit a fire in me. And I said, I'm not going to be that. And I'm going to fight and be different and not be 75%. And so that was one trigger for me early on. I think that sort of built my resilience. And, you know, I just sort of refused to lose kind of thing. And if you fall down, you get back up and you go back out. What other choice do you have, right? I just kind of built that attitude. So again, it came from my experiences. Yeah, frankly, I worry at times about my own kids. I'm like, they've had certainly, a, I think, a better life and they got a lot of love around them, which is fantastic. But I wonder, are they being tested enough to build that resilience? And so I do think if you haven't had sort of life 
delivering you these hardships, which are gonna probably tune you into more resilience. I think you gotta go find them and you gotta go build those, you know, go run a marathon and train for it. Like, you know, that's one example, but there's millions of things you could go do and find challenges in yourself and do it to just build that muscle of resilience. Because I don't know if there's any other way to really get it in yourself to be able to do that. And when you have tough days, know that there's better days ahead, kind of a mindset. That was always my advice to all my salespeople and people I've come across when I was a school teacher, make today the best day it can be. And sometimes that's going to be pretty crappy, (laughs) but you know, every day is going to be different. You're going to be given some days that are just, they're, they're rough. And that best day may not be that great, but make it the best you can. If you think of it that way, you're always thinking of how do I make this better kind of mindset? And I think that's what produces, you know, that better experience, that resilience, because you're always thinking in that, like, God, this is terrible, but how do I make it a little better? You know, and just inching towards a little bit of a better situation builds that sort of muscle and mindset, at least that did for me. So Greg, so many of the successful entrepreneurs and executives like you, you've encountered obstacles and you developed that resilience or grit over time. But you talked about profiling people who could deliver happiness in the interview process. How did you go about profiling people who actually had grit and were able to show that the resilience came from previous life experience? Yeah, good question. You know, there's some things that I think about. Some of it would just be looking at sort of their resume and obviously asking more questions about just life experience. I think my path helped build that grit and resilience you know, I was a house painter, a school teacher, and I sort of built my way up from the ground up at WebEx to kind of learn technology. So I kind of like to look for people who had gone through different experiences and their path wasn't sort of straight and narrow, it was a little bit winding. And I just felt like the more different experiences you can have in life often will, I think, build sort of that grit and resilience and the ability, frankly, to sort of pivot and handle change a little bit more effectively than others. Because that was a big part of being in a rocket ship company at Zoom. We had to have people that weren't afraid of change and things just so dynamic on a day-to-day basis. People who couldn't handle that would just freak out like deer in the headlights. So that was kind of one way. You know, the other, I think I really like to get concrete examples of things that people have experienced in their life. And like I said about delivering happiness, you're literally asking, like, tell me about an example where you've really delighted, whether it was a customer, someone you you didn't really know and kind of ran into and created a sort of delightful experience to find out if they were sort of that deliver happiness type person. It was similar with just grit. Tell me some challenges, the biggest challenge in your life. What did you learn from them? Did you overcome it? If not, how do you approach that? Like really just digging in and questions around that. Like how do they respond to sort of life challenges? If I couldn't read it in their story as it was documented on a resume or just other ways I found, I would sort of dig in with questions like that, just around how'd you overcome it? How'd you approach that if you didn't overcome it? Because you don't always overcome challenges, right? But that's okay. <laughs> it's how you sort of react afterwards that tells you a lot about the person. So I think those are some examples I can think of, Ray. Yes, I was doing my research for the podcast. I was thinking about asking you how you overcame Pleasant Painters not being a huge multi-million dollar success, but that's a different story, right? (laughs) It is. It is. Oh, man. Well, that's some fun. I had some fun painting while it lasted, but I think I'm glad I made the shift. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you are with that. Nothing bad about a career in painting. 
but it's funny, you know, you made the point about even your children and it kind of tied me back to my son, Max, who you know as well. And, you know, he, like your children, are overwhelmed with love from their parents and support. And he's kind of resolved and responded to it by challenging himself in different ways to kind of build some of that grit. And I'll give you one example. He's been an athlete in his whole life from a perspective of baseball and then lacrosse. And then he decided to go do rowing. So he joined a crew team. And I don't know how much you know or the audience knows about rowing. Bright and early, right? <laughs> Bright and early and just painful. Like, I, you know, I've played sports my whole career and I've never been as depleted as these rowers are at the end of a, forget about a true row, even their daily practices. And he decided he wanted to do it. He really worked hard. He knew he was only going to do it for a period of time. Really did not want to continue it in college. He knew like, I'll do it for two years and it'll be great. And it's, um, but it teaches you how to be knocked down and then pull yourself up and really to be completely depleted, whether it's physically or emotionally or both. And, you know, those are all important items. So you can do it from any kind of socioeconomic position. So I think that, you know, those are the things to see somebody who is going to challenge themselves. And I think that's going to obviously serves him well as he's getting out there and kind of gone through college. I was actually going to ask you as my son's about ready to head to college, you know, I'll have to ask you at a later point, just any advice on kind of that transition and things that you saw or support you can give as you see your child go off to really be on their own and start college. But I think, you know, having sort of that grit and ability to go after something like that and be willing to challenge yourself when no one else is trying to challenge you or, or something else is coming at you that's creating a challenge. That's, that's huge. I think that's going yeah. to serve them so well. Yeah, absolutely. So our final question, Greg, you are known as being one of the most supportive team players in the industry. You're not about ego. There are lots of CROs, very successful CROs that kind of can get caught up in that. And I've found you've always to be incredibly humble as well. I know that's just you, but talk a little bit about how that's served you and allowed you to build teams that will go that extra mile for you as well. And, you know, it's not something that we don't want to teach someone. If you're not a team player, yes, you should try to be more of a team player, but you're not going to change your own DNA. If you're generally not humble, then the only thing we can really do there is remind you of the benefits of being humble. And just, you know, as a leader, how much more energy and support you have under you and working with you within an organization. Tell us a little more about how that served you over your career. Yeah, I think some of the things mentioned when I was younger, the challenges I faced, you know, certainly light bulbs went off or like I said, triggers sort of set for me to kind of determine to have that resilience and grit. But, you know, as much as I was thinking of those things to do on my own, there were a lot of people that helped me and uh, pitched into give me support and you know, sort of lend a hand and making sure I had success through high school and, and whatnot. And that was humbling for me to see people willing to, you know, have that care to reach out support. And I think it put in me the understanding that no matter, I think what you do, certainly there's some things that are very individualized, but I say, regardless, I don't think you can ever take full credit for success in anything you do without 
making sure you give credit to those that sort of helped you get there. And again, I think that was built in me young. And I took that same mentality into my teams that I built. I knew that there was no success that was going to be had without the hard work from each and every one of the team members. And when we had great quarters, I knew that it wasn't about me getting up there and saying I did the greatest job ever. It was recognizing the people that had really put in the hard work, not only on the sales team, but you know, I always wanted to make sure I mentioned all the other departments that supported us, legal, sales ops, support, all the teams, frankly, at Zoom that were doing their jobs hard every day. So we in sales could have that pleasure of working with a customer in an amazing technology. And I think it just builds so much good energy in all the people that are part of something versus I think you suck away the energy if you like want to be in the spotlight and take all the credit <laughs> when they're like, wait a second, I was kind of helping a lot there too. <laughs> I could be taking all the credit. So, you know, I think it just takes the energy out of the room, so to speak. If you kind of have that mindset of thinking about the things it did for you, I think if you're thinking about others and the things they contribute, I will say this though, I learned something, you learn something obviously every day in life. <laughs> and I learned our last sales kickoff I attended in Denver so that was what, August 2019, we had a speaker and he had this whole concept about Monday matters. And he did this exercise with us about sort of the need to not only give a praise to people and their worth and their value, but being able to take that when someone gave that to you. And I think in my life, I've had that humbleness, but sometimes that humbleness slips into when someone does want to give you some credit for things you have done, you should accept that. Not only for yourself, but when people are giving you some praise for something you've done, you sort of take it away from them when you're like, oh, no, but you're great, too. And you sort of flip it right back at them. Yeah. That was sort of a big reminder to me, like, it's OK. You can be humble, but it's also OK to accept that, hey, you know, I did a pretty good job there as well. You know, and hey, thank you for saying that to people who would say that, because I think I would tend to brush that off. No, you know, so-and-so did a good job. And I wouldn't take the praise that maybe people would give me. And I think that's something to think about when you're humble. It's still okay to take the praise you receive because people are excited to give it to you. And you have to remember that. And I think that's different than being cocky. That was kind of a lesson around humbleness that I learned in the past couple of years that, yeah, I become better at least. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. And recognize when people want to give you good feedback. I think that was kind of a big learning moment around that whole concept as well. I find it very interesting and kind of the VC backed short-term pressure. You got to deliver quarter after quarter. We spent most of today talking about things like delivering happiness, delivering praise, being humble. I was going to ask you about one other personality trait that I think has been key to your success in Zoom, and that is being liked versus respected by your sales team. And there's short-term and long-term benefits of each. Can you give us a little bit more detail on being respected versus being liked? in which way you default to? Yeah, you must have heard that story of me as the teacher, trying to be liked <laughs> in my first year, and I got run over by my second grade students. That was kind of a big learning lesson for me about being liked versus respected. Yeah, I'm a very mellow guy, very easygoing. I have that good interaction with my sales team, but I learned honestly from that experience in teaching that, yeah, it wasn't about thinking about trying to be too nice to them and make them want to like you and be buddies because we had work to do. <laughs> we had a company to build and we had mountains to climb and, you know, there's going to be tough times and it's not about when they like me. They need to respect me. They need to trust me. They need to know when I say we got to go take that mountain. And yes, there's 
lots of rocks and cliffs and snakes and <laughs> they're going to go with me and they're not going to do that because they like me. If they just like me. They're going to be like, I'm not going up that hill with Greg. Yeah. <laughs> I still like you, but you can go up there by yourself. Yeah. It's more about knowing when to be hard and, you know, not in a mean way, but just challenge people. I think I was sincere enough in the way I always approach people that I kind of could tell someone wasn't given the best effort or they were a little checked out. I would check them at the door. And I think people will respect that, right? They respect that you're willing to go there and that you care enough to frankly go there and kind of check them at the door and say, we got to do this and you got to lift your head up and we need your help. And I think through those types of things, yeah, you build that respect and trust. Those are the two key yeah. things of a leader. You kind of do the war analogy, but that's when they're going to go to battle with you when they respect and trust you, not necessarily like you. They can actually not even like you, but if they respect and trust you, you're, you're in good shape. You're going to get a lot done together. Yeah, I always really loved the way you answered that because you didn't make it a black or white. And I have always said, it's one thing to be liked. It's another thing to be likable, but also respected simultaneously. And from what I've seen, as far as the results, you did a great job of balancing both respected, trust, and likability. So congratulations, Greg. Oh, thanks, Ray. What's really great about this time we've just spent together is I think you just did an amazing job of instilling why you have been successful to individuals that are looking to attain, I don't know if there are similar levels of success, but some level of success that they can do, whether they're a sales rep today or a CRO today, that's incredible. And I also just wanted to make sure that I thank you for one being on the show, but more important, I know now that as you are retired and you're doing some of your advisory work and board work, that you're also spending a lot of time and energy to give back to our country, to the world in so many different ways. And I just want to thank you for that. I know what you're doing. You're not going to get interviewed too much around those pursuits, but there are some of us that know what you're doing out there and appreciate it as well. No, thank you. That means a lot. Yeah, my wife, I don't necessarily seek any sort of praise for that. But yeah, no, it feels good. With a little more time on my hands, I got to put it to something that's good and greater than me. And right now that's big payback. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And I appreciate, like I said, having me here today. This has been awesome. I could keep going, man. We could, uh, should we do part two right here? Or? <laughs> yeah, we should go right into it. Well, you have work to do because you're a beautiful home in Arizona. You need a little bit of shoveling there or snow blowing. So that's a beautiful scene behind you. But thank you again, Greg. Thank you, Ray, for joining me. And hope you all enjoyed Selling the Cloud. In hey, fact, I'd like to also thank our listeners because this is our first episode, as you just heard, of Selling the Cloud. And if you got a lot of benefit from listening to Greg and understanding his journey, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast. If you thought it was good, rate it, like it, and we'll look forward to giving you the second episode next week. Bye-bye, everyone. Take care, all. Thanks.